So my name is Chase Elliott. I serve on the Info Central team here at Traders Point North. From a very young age, I was always the, the little kid that would look at somebody in a restaurant eating by themselves, they're at a booth, and I would ask my parents, why is that person alone? And to this day, just feel that I have a gift of, of compassion and empathy for people that really just are, are searching. In Info Central, we have that responsibility of meeting the people where they're at. We just want to create that atmosphere to make them feel welcomed, to make them feel seen and appreciated. God uses everything in our lives to point towards Him. Along my journey, I've had a lot of interactions, both good and bad, with the church. And I think that coming to Trader's Point and being able to connect with somebody that walks in the door and may have had a negative relationship with another Christian, um, we're all just flawed humans. But to be able to welcome that person in, to stand in front of somebody and say, hey, you know, I, I hear you and I can relate in some way. And we all have a story, we all have a background, but ultimately we're all being grown towards where God wants us to be. And it's just such a pleasure and a joy to be able to do that and to be in a position to make people feel welcomed each weekend. Right, give it up for Chase. Appreciate that, his story. Well, uh, what's up, Traders Point family? I uh, want to welcome everybody, wherever you may be joining us from, across all of our campuses or quite possibly online. And uh, before we get rolling today, uh, just a couple quick things I want to share with you. Uh, first of all, last week, uh, you might recall that I mentioned that our leadership team was just going to sit down and review our uh, face covering uh, policy kind of moving forward. And uh, this is probably going to come as no surprise to many of you, but just due to based upon uh, information that all of us have access to and kind of the trajectory of things, we're moving to a face covering optional policy uh, beginning today at all of our campuses uh, for the, uh, yeah, we can be happy about that. Good to see some naked faces. All right. Uh, uh, for the except, couple exceptions here, uh, our downtown campus has some local mandates in place till June the 7th, so we'll evaluate it after that. Our kids and student ministry spaces, uh, our teams will have some specific information for you there um, just due to the proximity of people in those classrooms. And so uh, I, I just want you to know this as, as your pastor. I know that this information might be exciting to some of you and it might cause some anxiety for others of you. And I totally understand and I get that. And uh, there's just lots of uh, perspectives and opinions on this. Kind of here's where we're coming from is uh, we believe that uh, you are an adult and you can make the best decision for you and your family as well as the people around you. And I just want to remind all of us we're in a series on pride. And uh, this would be a good time to kind of implement some of the teaching uh, from that as we're just gracious with one another because there's just different convictions around this. And I just want to thank you because it's been a challenging year and a half of leading through all the twists and the turns of what life has thrown at us. And I want to thank you for your grace and your understanding. It really has been uh, just a real blessing and an honor to just do this with all of you. You are so, so encouraging to me personally, and uh, I just really, really appreciate you. Here's what I've learned over the last year and a half. Uh, we can face anything if we do it together. And uh, let's, let's stay shoulder to shoulder, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
And uh, I believe that we will, we are and we will be emerging through this and out of it uh, much, much stronger than we ever were before. So thank you. Uh, second thing, uh, many of you may remember that uh, several weeks ago I told you that I was going to be going on a three-month sabbatical this summer. Uh, our elders, as well as you all, graciously give our pastors a, an extended sabbatical every seven years. So this is my second one in the 14 years that I've been serving here at Traders Point. And, um, and so today, is actually my, and, and this service, is my actually my last time to preach until September. That's like really hard to believe. Thank you for not clapping at that. I was a little insecure. <laughs> Some of you are like, amen. All right, get out of here. All right, so um, I, here's what I want to share with you is that um, I do not feel entitled to one. I, it is a gift. I treat it that way. I'm thankful for our elders. I'm thankful for all of you that graciously, I mean, so many of you have come up and just said so many kind things. Uh, to me and my family about this. I also want you to know that um, a sabbatical is not a three-month vacation, all right? I'm not going to be kicking it on a beach somewhere, sipping a little umbrella drink for three months. That'd be nice, but that's not what's going on. Uh, three weeks will be vacation with my family, but the rest of the time is hard work, just a different kind of work. Instead of like office work and strategic meetings and sermon planning, it's soul work. It's me getting alone with God and saying, God, I'm going to shut up for a minute and I need you to speak into my life and in my heart. The best teaching and preaching that comes out of me comes out of an overflow of the heart. And I'll just be really, really honest with you. I'm scraping the bottom of the bucket right now. It's been a tough year. And so I want to get away with God. I want him to say, God, I want to actually go to his word. I'll just confess to you, the temptation for me as a preacher is to go to God's word and to try to get up a sermon, even if I'm not trying to, because Sundays are always coming. And it's a huge temptation. And what I want to do is go to God's word and not try to figure out three words that all start with the same letter. But I want to go to God's word and say, God, speak to me just as your boy. Like just as your child, like because because I want to be in this for the long run. I don't want to flame out. Only 20% of leaders in the Bible finish well. So the odds aren't uh, stacked up well against me. And so I want to finish well. I want to, I want to run the race and, um, and I want to please God. And I want to serve people. And so this is, this is the way you do it. So thank you for giving me the time to do that. I just want to encourage you all. Like I know maybe, you know, it's not possible for you to take a three-month sabbatical, but you can Sabbath. Like build that into your rhythms throughout this summer because we all need it. And uh, our uh, teaching pastor, Ryan Bramlett, uh, he was supposed to go on his sabbatical last summer and then COVID happened. And so he didn't get a chance to take it. It's not ideal for the two of us to, to be gone that long uh, at the same time, but I was not about to take his sabbatical away from him. So he's going to be on sabbatical this summer as well. Next Sunday is his last Sunday to preach until September. But I want you to know that you are in really, really good hands because I sat down several months ago and I just handpicked all of the teacher's preachers, communicators that I love to listen to, people that just speak into my life. And so you're going to be in for a real treat. Uh, Kyle Eidelman's going to be here. Some of you might recognize his name. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, Mike Bro's going to be here. Um, Kenny Hart's going to be here. I know many of you love Kenny. And uh, so you're going to, in fact, you're going to be like Aaron and Ryan who? Like you're not even going to care, right, that we're going to be back. And so, uh, but just know that uh, I am anticipating coming back in September, preaching out of the overflow of the heart and really looking forward to the direction that God's going to be leading our church uh, in the next year. So thank you so much. Love you. Love you. <clears throat> well, we uh, are in week three of a series of messages uh, called Achilles. 
And if this is your first time to join us, uh, what we've been doing is, if you know anything at all about Greek mythology, you know that Achilles was this epic warrior that was completely uh, indestructible, or seemingly so, but he had one big weakness, his heel. And if you struck him on his Achilles heel, it would be his ultimate demise. And so we've been taking that, that example and we're just kind of placing it over our own lives to say that every single one of us have an Achilles heel as well. And it is this insidious thing called pride. And pride has these like multiple layers to it. I know speaking in my own life, it's, it's amazing how pride will bubble up to the surface when I least expect it. It, it happened just this last week. I was just reading a passage of scripture where uh, the religious leader was looking down upon the sinner and he was praying and he's like, God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner. And as I read it, I thought, God, thank you that I'm not like that religious leader who was glad he was not like that sinner. And all of a sudden it's like the pride like bubbles up into my life. And I've heard from a number of you that just said, I didn't even really realize the issues that I had with pride until we started kind of peeling back the layers of this onion to see all of the ways in which it manifests itself in our lives. Because most of the time we think about pride, we think about somebody with a big head. We think about somebody that's arrogant, but pride can also come when you think too lowly of yourself, not just too highly of yourself. And so what we've said is that we want to think rightly of ourselves, to put things in proper perspective. I love what Archbishop William Temple had to say about this. He goes, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom, and that's the word, from the impulse to think about yourself at all. That's hard and that's freeing. If you can get to this place in your life where you're really not just thinking all the time about yourself and, and uh, am I happy, am I not, am I getting the recognition that I feel that I, I deserve? It's just sort of this freedom to live your life open-handed in such a way as to say, God, how can you use me to, to bless other people. God, how can you use me for your glory? There's just real freedom in that, but we live in such a culture in which every single one of us are so tempted to just put so much focus upon ourselves. And as we begin to do that, what it'll eventually, where it'll eventually lead us is that pride will lead us to managing our image or posturing in such a way to where we pretend to be someone or something that we are not. Now here's the reality that's true for every single one of us, me included, is that we are all wearing a mask. Now I'm not talking necessarily about this one. I'm talking about this one. All of us have a tendency to put on a mask of sorts to pretend to be maybe a little bit better than we are, to have it a little bit more together than we actually do. And Jesus is inviting us to remove the mask, because as long as we have this thing on, it will damage our relationships, our relationship with God. It'll keep people from Jesus. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the television show, The Bachelor. It's first aired in 2002, something like 25 seasons of this. I'm not even entirely sure if it's still on the air, but the premise of the show was that there was this young, successful, good-looking bachelor that would come and date multiple women at once as camera crews follow them around and, and carefully capture and edit all of their moments together just as God intended. And uh, 
And so you've got, you've got, you know, the soft focus lens and you've got, you know, as they, they first meet each other in the first episode, you know, everybody just looks so good and there's lots of makeup and there's lots of smiling and lots of flirting and uh, it just looks so good. But as the show progresses, uh, you begin to see that, you know, they're, they're people, you know, just like everyone else. And at the end of every episode, there's this like rose ceremony where he's got to um, eliminate some of the women and he's got to narrow it down to the kind of the end of the season where he has just a, a handful of women that he's fallen in love with. <laughs> Such a rough life, you know, and he's, he's got to figure out which one of them he'll propose marriage to or ask to be his girlfriend and, and, and you, you watch the show and you, you see how they're posturing and, and how they're trying to present the best version of themselves. But man, it's just inevitable, even with all of the carefully produced set in which they are filming it on, that eventually the masks begin to come down and you begin to see little glimpses of who they really are. And I didn't watch much of the show, but I can remember um, seeing uh, one of the shows in which several of the women, when they were doing their private interviews, they mentioned how lonely they were. And a couple of them talked about um, how they had an ex-husband and the pain and the baggage that they were carrying from that. One, one young lady said that she had left a small son at home so that she could travel to California to do the show and she really, really missed him and wanted to get back to him. But maybe one of the most telling was these words from a young lady from Lexington, Kentucky. She said, I don't want to pretend anymore. I want something real. To which I so badly wanted to say to her through the television screen, then please look for a husband other than a television show. Because <laughs> that's not real. And if you think I'm being too harsh on them and some of you are like, well, I really like the show and it's just mindless entertainment. I get all that. I just want you to, I just want to confess to you, it's real easy for me to sit on the couch and cast judgment on a group of good looking people as they're pretending in front of thousands and thousands of viewers across America. But there's a pretender in here too. And there are all kinds of pretenders right now in the room where you are seated. The truth is, is that all of us are pretending in some fashion. And maybe you, uh, Go for a job interview, you know, and you're not lying, but you're not exactly telling the truth. Sort of wearing a mask. You're trying to anticipate what your potential boss wants to see and hear from you, presenting the best version of yourself. Go on a first date, trying to do everything you can to, to keep all the stuff that you don't want them to know kind of hidden long enough. And then we'll see if it gets serious or not before I start to take the mask down. I've even, I've even heard that this is known to happen at church. Can you imagine? Where you walk in and people are like, how are you doing today? Oh, fantastic. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Who talks like that, right? I mean, it's like, no, you're actually not doing so fantastic. And you've actually not been praising the Lord here lately. Just be real. But it can happen as we begin to pretend and as we begin to posture in such a way. This is perhaps the most insidious form of pride pretending to be someone or something that we are not. And it is the primary obstacle towards our growth and transformation in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is going to address in our passage today. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 23. Now, what we're going to look at is the last recorded sermon that Jesus ever preached. And uh, it's typically come to be known as the seven 
woes. In fact, the NIV uses the word woe, W-O-E. Now the word woe, some of you might know this, is technically known as an onomatopoeia. I love that saying that word. Say it with me out loud. Onomatopoeia. Isn't that fun to say? Every time I say it, I smile. And it's not even really all that useful for you to know that. I just wanted an excuse to say the word. And what an onomatopoeia is, is it is a word that sound describes its meaning. It's kind of like the word honk or the word meow. That's wow or uh, whoa fits into that same category. And so whoa is the word that you use when you're on a runaway horse. Whoa. Whoa is the word that you use when your toddler is starting to run out into a busy intersection. Whoa. And woe is the word that Jesus is going to use seven times in this chapter towards individuals that were pretending to be someone or something that they are not. Except here's the thing. Jesus isn't going to be very nice about it. And I just want to go ahead and give you that heads up because the image of Jesus that we're going to see in this chapter is not the image of Jesus that we're used to seeing or what normally comes to mind. Much of the time when we think about Jesus, we think about the meek and mild-mannered, sweater-vest-wearing Mr. Rogers of Jerusalem who is really nice to everybody and passed out candy to kids. But Jesus is going to look a little bit more like William Wallace from Braveheart in this passage. He's going to say some things that are going to raise some eyebrows and drop some jaws. And I want you to know that What he's going to say is going to sound like he's sitting down with a group of uh, greedy CEOs or shady politicians, but he's actually speaking to church folk. He's actually speaking to the religious crowd, people that should have known better. And and maybe many of us, me included, could could fit into that crowd. Like if if you've been attending church, reading the... Your Bible, following after Jesus for, I don't know, maybe more than two years. We, we could find ourselves in this category. And the reason why Jesus is going to be so direct here, and the reason why he takes this so seriously, is that when people who claim to represent him couldn't be further from him, it misleads others to him. And Jesus gets really upset about that more than any other thing. He could handle most sins, but when it came to that one, he almost always throws down. And so look with me at the beginning of verse one of chapter 23 says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now it's a small word, but I just want to draw it to your attention. Then what this means is that this is the idea that there has been this brewing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders throughout all of Matthew's gospel. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a road trip out West, but the further West you drive, the more the country begins to just kind of open up. There's not as many trees. The sky gets bigger. And so you can see a storm way off on the horizon. That's what's going on here. There's been this storm brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders. Here's what was happening. Jesus would perform a miracle. He would heal somebody. He'd release somebody from bondage. He'd forgive some sins. He'd show somebody grace that other people didn't think deserved it. And the religious leaders would be right there to critique it and criticize it every step of the way. And by Matthew 23, Jesus is fed up with it. And so he says in verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' 
seat. Now, what Moses' seat is a reference to is that there was this stone seat in most synagogues, and it was the place where the uh, most respected rabbis would sit down to teach. It was a position associated with honor and respect. And so Jesus says, you got all these religious leaders clamoring to sit in that seat. They want everybody to see them sitting there because that's the top dog. That's the most important person. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means to separate, to be separate from other people. And so they saw themselves as special. They were using their position to promote themselves. And so he goes on and he says this, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, to which I'm sure they sat up and they said, yeah, that's right. But then he says this, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Ouch. In other words, he's saying, hey, they look really good from a distance. Like they got some great information, but it isn't real. Like they're wearing a mask. It's, it's fake. It's all smoke and mirrors for the simple fact that they've got all the right information. That's why he said, listen to what they say but it hasn't really made any tangible difference in the way that they were living their own lives. And Jesus makes this uncomfortable observation that they were pretenders playing a role. I don't know which one of my daughters it was, but uh, when uh, one of my daughters was four or five years old, I was giving her a bath and she looked up at me and hit me with an unexpected question. She said, Daddy, is Hannah Montana real? I gotta tell you, uh, I was totally unprepared to answer that question. Like I was really ready to answer the Santa question or the Easter Bunny question, done lots of study of the theology of that. Hadn't done a whole lot of thought around the theology of Hannah Montana. <laughs> and so on the fly, right in the moment, here's what I said back to her. I said, well, honey, I said, Miley Cyrus is real. Hannah Montana is the character she plays. And I'm sorry if that's brand new information to you, but... <laughs> This is a dated illustration. You should know that by now, all right? Here's what she said back. She goes, what's that mean? I was like, man, you know? And so here's what I came up with. I was, at the time, we don't have it anymore, but at the time in our basement, we had this section where you could go down and play dress up. So you go down in the basement and we had all these costumes hanging up and all these masks hanging up and you could go down and you could just get lost in your own fantasy world. You go down in our basement, you could dress up like Peter Pan. You could dress up like Cinderella if you wanted. And there was even a section where our daughters could go and play dress up. <laughs> you all were faster on that than first service. There was a split second where first service just sat there and looked at me and I panicked. It's like, you're really not gonna get that? And I'm sure that all of us have played dress up in some way. Every, every year we go uh, to Branson, Missouri on fall break and we go to this place called Silver Dollar City. It's kind of like back in time. And they've got this thing where you can go in, you can dress up uh, in a top hat and you can dress up in like an overcoat, like from a different era. It's like a black and white photo, just as a family. We'll do that as a family. Maybe on Halloween you dress up. Maybe you go to a costume party. We've all, we've all done that. We love to play dress up. It's fun to do that. It's fun to wear a mask. Here's the deal. Many times we, 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 we don't grow out of it. We go from playing pretend to being professional pretenders. We go from dressing up as a character to, to playing a role in real life. And there's a word for this 
that Jesus uses seven times in this chapter. And it's a word that you've heard before. It's the word hypocrite. And just like pride, it's easy to spot a hypocrite at a distance, much harder to see it in yourself. And we like to throw this word around real loosely. We like to use this word as an excuse to not commit to anything. We like to use this word as, as an accusation to kind of throw at a distance. But really where this word came from, the, the origins of it didn't necessarily mean anything bad. It was just like an observation. The origins of this word actually come from Greek culture where you would go to like this amphitheater and there would be actors that would play various roles and they would put on different masks and they called those actors hypocrites. Wear a mask in one scene, take it off, put on a mask in another scene. And so you just constantly were sort of blending in. That's what pride does to us. Causes us to pretend to be somebody that we're not. We're managing our image. And listen, like we all have an audience. So we want people to to think that we're successful, you know, that we've got it all together. So we've got that mask that we wear. And we want people to think that we're a really great parent. We have all the right answers to questions about Hannah Montana. So we wear that mask. And we want to convince others that we're happy and content. So we got that mask. And we want others to see us as really super spiritual. And so we have that mask. And most of us, me included, have a bag of masks that we just kind of keep just in case, whatever environment we're walking into, just to try to manage our image and to posture around others. You read down through the rest of this chapter and Jesus will offer a warning against this type of acting in the form of a woe. It's actually an expression of grief. And he will say, woe to you. And he says to this religious crowd, whoa, whoa, you're just acting. There isn't anything about you that is real. And not only does that eventually create distance between you and God, it creates distance between other people who desperately need God. That's why the number one reason that people cite for leaving the church is hypocrites. People that acted one way in one setting, different way in another. Now listen, we're all broken. We're all a mess. So if you think, you know, if you're brand new here and you're coming in, like wondering if there's any hypocrites in the room, let me just go ahead and tell you, yes, there are. They're all around you. You're looking at one right now. Because none of us have our stuff together. There's only one who does. His name is Jesus Christ. And the gospel is we are saved by grace through faith. So if you're looking to someone else to give you confidence to follow God, get your eyes off that person, whoever it may be, and get it fixed upon Jesus. He's the only one who is not a hypocrite. My my grandfather uh, was a pastor for over 40 years. And I remember sitting down with him when I was in college and he was just telling me a story about a young man that attended his church back in the 1970s when he was a pastor in St. Louis. He said this young man was hurting and wanted to come in and talk to him, said that he was thinking about walking away from God and walking away from the church. And and so as my grandfather was talking to him, he found out that this young man grew up in church. His mom and dad took him every single Sunday, but they never really explained to him why they went. And what was even worse is he said he saw them act one way at church and another way at home. And he said to my grandfather, that his dad worked at a, his dad owned a car dealership. And when he got old enough, he went to work for his dad. And he said this, I went to church with the man every Sunday. I saw him sing the songs, shake the hands, wear the smile, listen to the sermons, say amen. 
And then I would watch him every day at the car dealership lie, cheat, and swindle people out of their money. I would watch him at home say harsh things to my mom. He said none of it was real. It was all plastic. And because his father had decided to cover up his own brokenness with a mask, his son decided to walk away from God. Any of you know that story? Is that your story? When we decide to wear a mask, it causes all kinds of damage. And God would rather us take off the mask and come to him and to others just as we are than to continue to pretend. And so Jesus is saying these words and he says, now that the masks have been removed and your true identities have been revealed, he said, now is the time for you to experience the transformation that you've been evading. We understand a little bit better why Jesus is not going to mince words with these religious leaders in Matthew 23. Here's why. This was the last week of Jesus' life. And think about that. If you knew this was the last week for you to live, every conversation would count. Everything that you would say would matter. And Jesus is desperately trying to get their attention because he knows if they continue to pretend, more people are going to get hurt and disillusioned. Now for us to really understand the complexity of what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand that the religious leaders um, were typically known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And collectively, they would have made up a group known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was sort of this religious ruling body of about 72 people. Now the Sadducees were very liberal in their understanding of scripture and the Pharisees were very conservative in their understanding of scripture. Therefore, they didn't get along with one another. Imagine that. It's sort of like Republicans and Democrats today, except the one difference is, is that Republicans and Democrats get along a whole lot better than the Sadducees and the Pharisees did. Now, we hear words Sadducee and Pharisee, very few of us can relate. We're like, I'm not either. But here's what a Sadducee was. If you were a Sadducee, that meant that you were born into that position. You could not be a Sadducee if it wasn't in your lineage and bloodline. If you were a Pharisee, however, that meant that you could earn that position. So that was open to, to anybody. If you were willing to put in the work and, and study hard and make all the right contacts with all the right people, you could eventually become a Pharisee. Now, here, here's what I've come to recognize as somebody who has spent a little bit of time pretending behind the mask myself, is that when it comes to church, pretenders usually fall into one of those two categories. Born into it or you think you earned it. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, wait a second, I don't, I don't identify as a Sadducee or a Pharisee. And, and this is one of those passages where we can read it and think that it doesn't apply to us. We are just sort of spectating and uh, we're kind of kicking back, eating our popcorn watching Jesus incinerate the bad guys. And I hate to ruin that picture for you. I really do. I don't mean to catch you off guard or surprise you with this, but there are pretenders right now in this room. Don't look, but they're here. I've been known to see them in the parking lot and shake hands with them in the lobby on the way out the door. I even have it on good authority. They make their way up on this stage every now and then. And I see one almost every day in the mirror. And I got to make a daily decision. Am I going to continue to wear the mask or am I going to remove it? And all of us fit into one of these categories as it relates to church folk. 
born into it or earn it. Here's what I mean. For many of us, we are like the Sadducees in the sense that you were born into a church-going family of some kind. So maybe you grew up Catholic. I hear that a lot. Maybe you grew up Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran. And so your story is that like, you don't even remember a time in your life when you didn't go to church. Like mom and dad always took you. And, and that's not a bad thing, but it, unless it becomes a bad thing, unless you begin to, from a very early age, start putting on the mask. And you've memorized the lines and you know what to say and you're very fluent in Christianese. And you know how to manage your image when you're at church and you know how to be somebody else when you're not. And uh, this, I got to tell you, like that's the category I would fit into. Like I'm, I, my birthday was in April. So like, I don't know, two or three weeks after I was born was Easter. And I, there's this picture, uh, my grandpa holding me, I'm dressed all in blue for Easter. And I don't remember ever a time or a season of my life not going to church. The, the, the strong side of that is I remember being in God's word from a very early age. So like I've just memorized a lot of it being around it. But here was the downside. Um, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, even though I claimed I did. Like at the age of six, I got baptized. You want to know my memory of this? I think it was genuine for me at the time. But my memory was not that I was a broken sinner in need of a savior. My memory was uh, everybody else seems to be doing this. I should too. And I remember the pastor coming to my dad's office to sit down, to ask me some questions, sort of like a job interview. And he meant well, I'm sure. Seven or eight questions. I regurgitated the answers because I learned them in Sunday school. And that next Sunday, I got baptized on Sunday night. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't genuine. I'm not saying that God didn't save my soul in that moment. I'm just saying I didn't know what I was doing. And my life showed it. Because I just sort of grew up like pretty lukewarm about God even though I was in a Christian school, even though I was in church on the weekends and I was headed towards becoming a hardened agnostic. Until when I was 18, I sat down and I read the book of Romans. And by the time I got to chapter eight, God wrecked my soul. And I realized this is not a game of pretend that I'm in need of him. And it's not about being born into the right family. It's not about being in church every single Sunday. I'm a sinner in need of his grace. And unfortunately, this describes so many churchgoers that I've met. Maybe it would even describe you. Maybe right now you would just realize the Holy Spirit would reveal to you. You've just been going through the religious motions because this is what you were sort of born into. It's what's expected of you, but you've never really given your heart to Jesus. And for as long as you can remember, you've just had this religious mask you wore on Sundays. Now, it wasn't necessarily who you were Monday through Saturday, but you knew how to pretend on Sunday. And so Jesus would simply say to you and me, if that's you, <clears throat> woe. Woe to you. Woe if you're just going through the religious motions. Woe if you were just born into a Catholic or a Baptist family and you think that's what saves you. Whoa, if you were baptized as a baby, which is a good thing, but you never really made that decision for yourself, which is a bad thing. Woe to you if you find yourself attending or watching a church service, but you are not serving or applying any of it to your life. Whoa, woe to you if you are here because of your family's tradition, your school's expectation, or your spouse or girlfriend's ultimatum. Whoa. Your pride is causing you to pretend and it's driving you further from God and it's probably driving others further from him. 
For others of us, though, maybe we're a little bit more like the Pharisees in the sense that we feel like our faith is something that we can earn. Now, I've seen this happen where people, like, they have this dramatic conversion experience where they, they've been living a really broken life and God gets a hold of them and they're saved by grace and they're so on fire. And then, and then they, they, they dive in and they begin to read the Bible and they begin to get into a group and they begin to grow spiritually like a weed. And then all of a sudden, it, it, they don't mean for this to happen, but there's a shift that takes place where all of a sudden they start to feel like they're earning it. And then they're starting to compare themselves to others who maybe aren't growing like they are. Doesn't take long to move from grace to legalism. It sneaks up on you. This is what happened with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees knew the law really well, which is a good thing. Jesus affirms that. Here was the problem. The Pharisees added about 500 extra laws to make sure that you obeyed the original laws. And then they treated the extra laws as just as important, sometimes maybe even more important than the original law. So please know that Jesus wasn't attacking their scholarship. He was attacking their authenticity. He wasn't attacking their mind. He was, a, he was speaking into their heart because what they were teaching was not a reflection of who they really were. They knew what they needed to know, but it never really changed them from the inside out. And so for Jesus, it isn't enough for us to know the right information and to say the right things if he does not have our heart. So he would sum it up this way. He would say, they honor me with their lips. Do you know the rest? But their hearts are far from me. And he would say to you and to me today, if you feel like you've drifted into this legalistic earning of, of salvation, he would say, whoa. Whoa, if you know all about me, but you don't really know me. Woe if you're more concerned about personal preferences than personal purity. Woe if you are volunteering in any sort of way, hoping that others will notice your giftedness. Woe if you are giving me your time and energy and talents, but you're never fully giving me your heart. Woe, your pride is causing you to pretend. And Jesus isn't finished. He says this in verse five. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. And keep in mind, this is before the age of social media. So say, this is a human problem, right? Everything they do is done for people to see. And here is the principle that we get from what Jesus has just taught, if you're taking notes, is that prideful pretending causes me to be more concerned about managing my image than developing my character. And the development of character will oftentimes run against the very grain of managing my image. And so much of the time, that's what we're doing. We've just fallen into image management. And the Pharisees were using their religious practices and righteous actions to attract attention. A pretender can put on a really impressive show when they think that the crowds are looking. And it's important to understand that Jesus didn't have a problem with what they did or didn't do. His big problem was why they did it. And see, that's what pretenders do. We allow our motivation to be in the wrong place. And we're happy doing things for others. Just as long as they notice. And there's nothing wrong with feeling appreciated. But when that becomes our motive for doing anything, then we're pretending like it's not real. And so Jesus verbalizes this principle in verse 5. And the next thing he does is to clearly provide an application of that principle to their context, right? I need you to know that. In fact, this is what good teaching and preaching does. Oftentimes people will come up to me and say, what is the hardest part about weekly preaching? And I would say, hands down, the application. 
It's not so much the exegesis, which is the meaning of the passage, because there's lots and lots of tools for that. And I've been preaching for, I've got a lot to learn, but I've been preaching about 22 years. And so did, you know, figuring out what the meaning of the passage is, isn't that difficult. Figuring out how to apply it to you all, that's hard. Because um, we got all kinds of different perspectives in the room at all of our campuses. We got people that have different political convictions. We got people who look through different lenses. We've got uh, people who are in, in different stages of life. We've got some who are uh, seasoned believers, some who are brand new believers, some who are not yet believers. And so how do you feed a meal to that diverse of a group of people? The application is really, really hard. I probably spend 15 to 20 hours in sermon prep. And I would say that uh, probably 12 of those hours are figuring out the application of what the text is saying. And if you ever find yourself drifting off in a message, chances are it's probably because it's heavy on information and light on application. The truth, uh, there is truth and then there's truth applied. And the application is where the transformation happens. This is how Jesus taught. This is how Paul wrote. And this is what Jesus does here. So I say all that to say this. This is the application that Jesus is gonna make from what he just taught. And it's in verse five. Are you ready for this? They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. I knew that was going to hit you hard. <laughs> they hit us all right where we live, right? I know you were walking in here today wondering about this very thing. This is the application that Jesus is making within their context. Now to you and to me, we read that and it doesn't do nothing for us. I guarantee you there isn't a single person in any of our rooms right now that read that and felt convicted. You're like, yeah, it has nothing to do with me. I mean, I can't really remember the last time I thought about the width of my phylactery and I haven't worn a tassel since college, but if I remember, it was long enough. So what in the world does this mean and does this have any application for us? Well, before you dismiss it, understand that what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out the tendency that we all have for pretenders to put too much emphasis on somebody's importance or spiritual depth by judging their outward appearance. So here's what this means. In the book of Deuteronomy, God gave his people a command. He said, fix your hearts and minds on God's word. Tie them to your hands, bind them to your foreheads. So the purpose was to live so intimately with God's word that it would become part of your day to day. The Pharisees though, being the ones who were trying to earn it, they took this very, very literally and they developed these boxes called phylacteries. And they fastened the phylactery to their forehead. So it would always be in front of them all day long. And then to their left hand by a strap and they would place the scripture passages they had read for the day in the phylactery. Now, as you might imagine, that uh, day after day after day of this, you would need to eventually upgrade your phylactery to make room for more scripture passages. And because it was so visible, it didn't take long for this to turn into a competition. The larger your phylactery, the more spiritual you were. That was the line of thinking. And so you, they could just look down on each other. So what it originally started off as something to glorify God, grow in your relationship with them, they ended up using to draw attention to themselves. And I'm just so relieved that we don't have to deal with this anymore today. So if you would, just turn in your itty bitty Bibles <laughs> to verse six. Uh, this is actually um, 
the largest and the oldest Bible uh, that I own. Um, my wife got it for me, I think at some estate sale. She knows I like old Bibles. And, and uh, you know, you look at this and, and it's hard to believe they ever made Bibles this big. I mean, it's not really functional. I mean, it's pretty, you can get a good workout with it. Um, and we look at this and we might think, wow, that's like so, there's something about that that's so spiritual and so authentic. And, and yet what I want you to understand is that this was pretty modern technology compared to what Jesus had. Like God's word when Jesus said this, wasn't a book kind of bound this way. It was a scroll that had no table of contents, no chapters, no verses for you to navigate your way around. It was a scroll. And in order for you to know where to go in the scroll, you had to have the whole thing memorized. And then along came this piece of technology. It made it easy for us to kind of navigate around and and so for many of us, we look at this and go, wow, that, that's more spiritual than, you know, a Bible on your phone. But they would have looked at this and said the same thing. See, here's the deal. Many of us, maybe we have a tendency to kind of say, you know, I, I'm not going to do a digital Bible. Give me a paper Bible. That's more spiritual. And I would just simply say, no, it's not. Now, don't get me wrong. I like doing my study out of a paper Bible, but it is no more spiritual than a Bible that's digital. Jesus would say many of us, we have a tendency to sort of look down on others. We have a tendency to sort of wear these masks to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. He would say, woe, if you're doing that, woe, if you're wearing your religion on your sleeve, woe, if you've turned public prayer into a performance, woe, if you brought a paper Bible today and you're sort of judging the person in front of you because they're reading along on their phone. Woe, if you ever felt more important than others, because when I said the word exegesis a few minutes ago, you already knew what that meant. And in verse six, as we finish this up, Jesus says they place, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you only have one master and you're all brothers. You know what that means? That means that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Because, hey man, like we're, we're all... We're all in desperate need of God's grace just as much as anyone else. He goes, and, and do not call anyone on earth, lowercase f, father, for you only have one uppercase f, father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called lowercase t, teacher, for you have only one uppercase t, teacher, the Christ. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, don't be looking to each other. Don't create this pecking order. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all in need of him. Which leads to the last point that Jesus is going to make here is that prideful pretending causes me to be more concerned with the applause of men than the approval of God. That's a big, big problem in our culture right now. And it's a big part of the problem why the church is losing influence because we're just living for the applause of men rather than the approval of God. And the most honored and important seats that Jesus is referencing here would have been the most visible places closest to the platform where the law was often read. So they somehow equated a person's value to the seat that they occupied, which is ridiculous, but we still do it today. And Jesus is saying, look, where you sit and the title you have in front of your name and the people that you were seen with, that makes no difference to me at all. And if you feel that it does, if you feel disrespected because your opinions never get listened to and your ideas haven't been implemented and maybe that ministry that you feel really passionate about is not being supported, he just says, hey, listen, check your motives. Make sure your motives are not based upon the applause of men, but earnestly on the approval of God. And finally, Jesus shows us here how to be real. It's the verse we've been coming back to 
over and over again throughout this series. He says, The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a promise and an invitation. And Jesus is saying that the mask that you and I have been wearing, it, it's, it's, not, it's not held on by a string. Like It's been welded on there. And the only way to get it off is to come clean before God, to st- stop pretending and to begin to serve others without any ulterior motives. And so this is my challenge for you, not, not just for this week, but for this summer, all right? Here's the challenge. Go serve someone in hiddenness. Go, go serve someone and, and don't announce it on social media. Go serve someone and don't look for the applause. Go serve someone in anonymity. Let God be your audience. Just bless the socks off someone. Just serve in hiddenness and let it encourage somebody's day. Now, I don't think I can finish this message without also saying the opposite. There are some of you that don't have this problem. Some of you, you're always serving in hiddenness. You can't ever take a compliment. Somebody comes up to you and says, thank you. And you immediately deflect it. And you're like, no, no, not not me at all. It's all God. (laughs) Can I just give you a little piece of advice? Somebody says, thank you. Say, oh, you're welcome. It is an honor. That's all you need to say. Just receive it. They're saying it because they want to bless you. They want to encourage you. And then for others of us, we go the other way where we're actually serving. and We're hoping somebody notices. We're hoping that we get that attention. And the way for us to remove the masks is to begin to serve others in humility. To not look down upon anybody. We are all just beggars trying to show other beggars where to find food. Jesus is the only one who can save. And I've mentioned this before to, to many of you that One of the verses that really just fuels my ministry and keeps me in it comes out of this short little one chapter book called Jude, where God encourages us. He said, snatch others from the fire. And one day when I get to heaven and I meet my heavenly father, I wanna smell a little like smoke. I want him to say, thank you for preaching the truth, but doing it with grace so that people who are far from me can have the ears to hear it and receive it. Aaron, don't get in the way of what I'm trying to do in the world because of your own pride. And can I implore you to do the same? I read this last week that the most stressed out city in the United States right now is ours, Indianapolis. Kind of took me by surprise. Nearly 30 cities that they looked at, that it's a grid of uh, thing, questions that they looked at. And I don't know how accurate it is, but um, whether it's true or not, it's way up there. Our city's hurting. And they're not going to find answers in politics. They're not going to find answers in Wall Street. They're going to find it from a gracious God who gave everything to be reconciled with them. And as a church, we want to clear the way clear the path because God's drawing people to himself. People aren't less spiritual right now. They're just leaving the church. Why? Because there's hypocrites here, me included. And we want to be, we want to drop the mask and be real with God and with others so that we can grow and we can be transformed. And so that as many people as possible might come to know the Jesus that can only save. So this is the invitation for you This summer, before I see you again in September, 
drop the mask, be real. That's the only way you'll heal from this year that we've been through. That's the only way that God will transform us. That's the only way that he'll breathe new life into our church is when we stop pretending. And I wanna lead the way. And so today as we, as we respond to God, I, I just wanna say two things. First of all, I just wanna look right into the camera and look right into your faces and say, if there's anybody here and something that I just said hit you, specifically, you've maybe been growing up in church, but you've just been going through the motions and you've never made this decision for yourself, it is not too late for you to drop the mask and make this decision for yourself. Stop worrying about what mom and dad and grandma think and make the decision for yourself. Some of you, you, you're here for the very first time. You had no idea what to expect. Honestly, you came in super skeptical because you don't like churches that are big. Huh. Uh, here's the secret. I don't either because it's just more headache. But I do want as many people as possible to go to heaven. So I'm not going to keep the church small. I want you to know it's more simple than you think. You drop the mask, which you're exhausted wearing, I bet. You're saved by grace through faith, through the finished work of a heavenly father who gave everything because he loves you, because you're his boy and you're his girl. And you can receive him today. What I'm gonna invite all of us to do across all of our campuses is just to stand to our feet. So if you would, just stand to your feet. If you're in your living room, I know it's a little weird. I've been there, but stand to your feet. And could we all drop the mask? Now, now, hey, not necessarily talk about this one because some of you aren't ready to do that yet. But I am talking about this one. Drop the mask and let's be real before God. Maybe you might even take this posture. I know this is uncomfortable for many of you, which is why you should do it. Just raise up your hand. It's not meant to be comfortable. This is a posture of surrender. This is a posture of God, I've got, I'm not holding on to anything. I'm coming to you just as I am. I need you. This is what my kids did to me whenever they were walking behind me and they were in desperate need of, of their father. They just held their hands up to me. We need that now more than ever. And so as we sing and we lift up our voices, listen, this is how we apply the truth of what we just heard to our lives. It starts right here to then go out into our week. So Father, we come to you right now and we just wanna remove the masks. It's so hard because we're so used to pretending and so, Father, help us to no longer manage our image or posture around others, but just be real and come clean and to stop being so mean to each other, stop judging each other, stop assuming things about each other and recognize that we're all in desperate need of the grace that only comes through Jesus Christ. And God, we, we're, in a, we're living in a hurting city, in a hurting country, in a hurting world. And right now more than ever, the light of the church needs to be at its brightest. And that begins with all of us. So we remove the masks, we come to you now. We ask that you would do a transformational work that only you can do. God, hear our voices, receive it as praise. Be pleased with us as we worship for an audience of one so that we might live for an audience of one. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.